Hi, and welcome to the Cyclical Podcast. My name is Cassandra Wilder, and I'm a naturopathic doctor and a women's cyclical health expert. This podcast is a space where we demystify all of the bad hormone advice we've been given and instead get back down to the foundations. Your dream of regular, pain-free periods, balanced hormones, and vibrant energy is within reach. Join me and other incredible experts here every single Monday for conversations that are sure to be life-changing. Let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Cyclical Podcast. We are continuing our Cyclical Birth series this week, and I am so excited about today's guest. Today, I got to interview the incredible Dr. Nathan Riley, who is a board-certified OBGYN, and he chose to leave the conventional model of medicine to do more inspired work. He works with women from conception to menopause, providing natural means whenever possible to promote vitality and autonomy in health decision making. And that is what so much of today's episode is about. Nathan and I talk a lot about how pregnancy and birth have really been made out to be like an illness or something that requires excessive medical care. And this is part of the reason why there are so many interventions and why the system of medicine is in such a complicated fashion, so very broken and against innate biology and physiological birth. When I shared on Instagram that I was going to be interviewing Dr. Riley, a lot of you submitted such good questions. And so we get to a lot of them. We talk about breach. Is breach really as dangerous as we've been led to believe? And do doctors even learn how to deliver breach babies anymore? We talk about the current C-section rate, which if you didn't know, it's almost one in three babies in the United States are born by cesarean. We also had some really powerful conversations around, is it really bad to go beyond 42 weeks pregnant? What is the real risk of that? And what about group B strep? If you're positive, do you need to do antibiotics? What are the benefits of delayed cord clamping? And is breaking the water a good thing? And why is it so common? So you can see we talk about so many things. I could have talked to him for like six hours because you all submitted so many good questions. But in this already very long podcast episode, this was as many as we could get to. I really appreciate that more than anything, what I received from this episode was just the reminder to listen to my own gut, to listen to my intuition, and to remember that the only person that can really be an advocate for me through pregnancy and labor is me. So if I'm giving my power away to a doctor or a midwife, or I'm expecting someone else to save me through this experience, it's not going to work. And so by understanding our true risks, by understanding how our bodies work, and by trusting that our bodies are truly meant to move through the process of pregnancy and birth, we are setting ourselves up for a far more successful outcome. I hope you all enjoy this episode. I had so much fun recording it, and that's definitely evident through the episode because I'm like, oh my God, it feels so good to talk to someone like-minded who also has that extra layer of understanding um, as an OBGYN who went through all of it and then ultimately decided to leave that medical model because it was not in alignment with his beliefs. So here we go. Here's my interview with Dr. Nathan. Hi, Nathan. It is such a treat to have your expertise here on the podcast. I can't wait to hear about your story from medical school to then being a practicing physician and then hearing what made you ultimately want to leave the medical model as it stands. Thank you so much for being here. And yeah, tell us your story. Well, my story, Cassandra, first off, thanks for having me. I think that these types of conversations, they become so candid 
Um, and that's really what our clients that were, you know, the people, the women in particular, and in, in our cases, um, it's really what they're seeking is, is a candidness around these topics, as opposed to this sort of authority, the, the illusion of authority that comes through the, the lens of the conventional medical model. And um, so I just want to honor you and thank you for doing the work and in, in getting these types of conversations out there. I also think that that sort of plays into why I stepped out of the conventional model in the first place, which is that um, if I'm being told what I can and can't do for my clients, then why did I spend $500,000? Why didn't I just go to like tech school and then have a protocol and you, you, you do this and then you press this button and then you do that and bam, out comes the answer. <laughs> right. So, so uh, in brief, my story is that, you know, I did the sort of thing that everybody does. You know, you, you want to do good. I'm using air quotes on my end. You, you want, you're a do-gooder and, and you, you probably have some sort of trauma yourself where you want to, to, to you know, uh, maybe refocus your lens on helping other people because you yourself maybe didn't find help whenever you needed it, you know? And so instead of getting too philosophical, I, I'll just say I, I took the typical route. I went to college, I went to med school, I went to residency, I went to fellowship, found myself in deep debt, became very disillusioned very early on in my OBGYN training with how we were managing birth in particular. But then it even goes further than that. It gets into birth control and, and hormone therapies and how we treat endometriosis and cyclical pelvic pain and, and you, you name it, you know, it was, fertility is a big one, you know? everything, the answer was either pharmaceutical or surgery. And it was like, well, those aren't working. So guys, what else can we use? And they're like, well, you were, you were taught to, to use these two things. So use them. And that wasn't obviously good enough for, for me. I was super curious from the very beginning. I'm very, very um, right brain versus left brain. So I've had a hard time through school and anybody out there who's looking to pursue medicine, I generally will tell them, are you sure you want to do that? Mm -hmm. Especially through the lens of allopathy or, or the, you know, which is the fancy word for Western medicine, because mm -hmm. at the end of the road, you're being trained to do one thing, which is to operate within the conventional medical model. And, mm -hmm. and so many women are finding, I think that it's like, if it's not just an ineffective treatment, they also don't feel like they've been really acknowledged as if as a, a complete person you know when they're sitting on that crinkly paper under the bright lights and some strangers mm -hmm. looking at their inside their vagina with a cold speculum you know they're just not really feeling like it's a very human experience so all of that is to say in looking backwards i'm happy i did it but i also uh, needed to find a, a better way to do it on my own terms because on my own terms i could actually design a a practical way to to address women's health issues um, that was very patient-centered and, and, and patient-forward, you know, and, and considering I've got two little girls and a wife and a sister and a mom, how would I want to tr be treated? How would, how, would, how would they want to be treated if they came to my clinic? And mm -hmm. it certainly wasn't the way that I was taught to do it. So yeah. that's my journey in a nutshell. <laughs> wow. Well, I really honor you for knowing what was right for you. I, I think there's a lot of physicians that also have those feelings of like, this doesn't really seem right. And I'm not really seeing these typical approaches work or, you know, people are coming back yeah. year after year for continued um, issues and continued care, but they stay in it because I don't know that maybe they're afraid of their colleagues thinking they're, you know, a weird natural health person all of a sudden, yeah. or I don't know, but I really honor you for knowing that you needed to step out of the system. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, thank you. I mean, and, and a lot of people, I think, they hear that story, Cassandra, and they, they wonder to themselves, why don't more doctors do that? Or why don't more doctors think like you? And I think everybody thinks like me. But there's just so many 
conditions that we have to break free from in order to do the thing that we really were put here to do. And if you were a surgeon and, and you were put here to just cut into people's bodies, then great, you're doing what you wanted to do. Most OBGYNs probably agree that we've got too many C-sections. They probably agree that we use too many fertility uh, synthetic hormones to help people get pregnant. They probably agree that we do too many ultrasounds and intervene too much in childbirth, but they've been, they're in this echo chamber of other people that are similarly kind of disillusioned, but don't really have the capacity or the wherewithal to look outside of the confines of the hospital or the clinic in order to really live out their life purpose. So I don't think there's anything special about people like us, like me and you, or anybody else who's working outside of the model, whatever that means to you. I think it's it's really just a matter of having integrity and, and being able to admit that you're wrong. Nobody in, in, rewards us in any walk of life for saying, I just don't know, or I made a mistake. And so as long as our ego's in the way and we can't, you know, we shudder at the possibility of having been wrong with how we were talking to or treating or touching our patients, then you're never going to get change. And it's in that world of nuance that I love to kind of just balance my boundaries. And, um, and you know, there are good reasons to go to the hospital. If I was in a major car accident or I ended up with a horrible abscess that spread to the blood and now I've got meningitis, like, yeah, you really do want antibiotics or you maybe really do need trauma surgery to remove that, you know, that limb from, you know, the punctured through your abdomen and is sticking out the backside. But that's far and few between. And and you don't go to the hardware store to buy donuts <laughs> or eggs for that matter. Mm-hmm. You go to the hospital, that's what you get, is you get very, very high intervention care. But that can't be the only possibility because women are not finding the care that they need. Mm-hmm. And so that's why people like us are out there kind of fighting the hard fight. It's not easy to do what we do, but but it is uh, rewarding because it allows me to live in my integrity and and to not have to silence those voices in my head that maybe we're doing things wrong. Instead, I, I acknowledge those voices. And now I'm out here trying to figure out how to do this in a different way. Mm-hmm. I love it. So incredible. Just stories like yours get me so excited. I'm like, yes, everyone is waking up. We're all seeing that, especially in the realm of obstetrics, like we can do better. There's a lot of room for improvement in how yeah. pregnant women and laboring women are treated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It definitely feels like birth and pregnancy have been pathologized and that if so many women say to me, you know, they feel like once they got pregnant, they just kind of felt like they were stuck on a conveyor belt of like, this is just what you do. You have to do this. You have to find a doctor. You have to get these ultrasounds. And sadly, a lot of women don't really know at the time that there's other options and they just feel like all of this is already pre-decided. You know, like we were saying, um, the C-section rate is now about 32%. It's almost one in three, which I think is insane. But why do you think this is happening? Why is this conveyor belt medical model so so entrenched in uh, obstetrics? So what you're asking is, why is the maternity care system the way that it is, even though we know that there are problems? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of what I've said actually plays into that. I think that there are a variety of factors. Everybody thinks it's financially driven. It might be, but that's only one small part. I do think that the financial driven part is not why we see necessarily more C-sections. And and what I mean by that is if I'm sitting with a woman who's in in labor, and I don't even work in the hospitals anymore, but when I did, and I I attended like a thousand births. So, I mean, you stop counting after a while, but it's innumerable women I've cared for in maternity units across the country. 
if I was sitting there with them and I had the option of either, you know, quote, allowing her to have a vaginal birth versus doing C-section, a vaginal birth is still way less time for me. It's way less effort on my part. So why would I want to do a major surgery with all these other risks? And granted, I mean, the C-section conversation alone is really, really challenging, and we can get into that. But it's not necessarily that I am going to walk home. Nathan Riley is going to make more money by doing more C-sections. However, within a maternity care unit in a hospital, any hospital in the country, they've got, let's say, I don't know, where I trained in, in a residency, we had, I think, 11 beds, but then we had five triage beds, which is like you could use those for, for labor if you really needed to. And then we had two or, no, we had three operating rooms. So that could be potentially, you know, almost 20 people being cared for at the same time. And the faster that we empty those rooms, clean those rooms, and get another person in there, the more likely we are going to be making more money for the hospital at large. And that was within Kaiser. Kaiser is one of the wealthiest um, hospital systems. And they're, they're wealthy beyond measure because of a variety of things, like they have their insurance company, et cetera. So they can control the costs. And for them, it's actually not beneficial to be using C-section because they're also the payer. So it doesn't mean that they can't pay themselves more money for doing a C-section. It doesn't, obviously it doesn't work like that. But if we are only going to attend 30 births this week versus 100 births by getting people in and out as quickly as possible, that is definitely way more, um, let's just say, people we can accommodate and therefore money that we can bring in. So it doesn't matter how the babies come. It's just a matter of of providing space and getting them in and out the door as quickly as possible. So sometimes maybe C-section does make sense in that regard from a financial perspective. The other thing is that when I am practicing, I'm not usually doing a one-man job. I usually have a doctor coming in to take over for me. And if I've got a person who I'm like, oh, you probably can have a baby vaginally, but we have this one stupid sort of monitoring system called the continuous fetal heart rate, electronic fetal heart rate monitoring. It hasn't been validated. It tells us if things are good. It doesn't necessarily tell us if things are bad. But I'm looking at it, and my colleagues are going to look at it, and they're going to say, that one looks bad to me. Again, based on nothing, it's it's really a shot in the dark. Um, then I may feel more compelled to do the surgery so that I don't feel like I'm dumping work on my colleague. Because if I do that too often, they might say, this guy is not in alignment with how we practice. So I've got this cultural sort of pressure to do things a certain way. Mm. And then, of course, there's the medical legal side. You know, if a baby ends up with brain damage, the baby probably was going to have brain damage anyways. It's not because of what I did or didn't do in childbirth. And that's a really confronting reality for people. You are not entitled to have a healthy kid who goes to Harvard someday just because you got pregnant. And if your baby ends up developing cerebral palsy or something else, we're now realizing, oh, the more C-sections we do, we're not seeing the cerebral palsy risk drop or the, uh, the, the prevalence drop or incidence, in, 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 I guess, in this regard. Meaning, the more stuff we do to a laboring woman, we're not getting the better results of less cerebral palsy, less mortality, etc. If anything, in our country, compared to a lot of developing countries, we're actually seeing an increase in morbidity and mortality because we're throwing more medicine at a problem that is not a medical issue. It's cultural. It's spiritual. It's emotional. And so you combine just those three things. The, the fear of medical lit of litigation, of course, is like this baby got cerebral palsy. The parents, of course, are devastated because that is a, a very special needs child for the rest of that child's probably adult life, you know, all the way through the decades. They want somebody to take some of that pain off of them. And we treat money like it is our new God. So let's get as much money into the hands of those grieving parents, which can help them care for that child. But it doesn't actually fix anything in the system. It just makes doctors a little bit more likely to intervene. 
because they're you know desperate to not end up in the courtroom because it looks bad. They might get their license taken away. They don't want to do any of that. So I'm really good at C-sections. So let's just cut as many women's bellies as we can and get those babies out. And then everybody's happy because that's the way we do things here. So if you take all of those, those parts of this, this becomes a very, very challenging issue to solve. And everybody seems to have the right answer. But the answer really lives in the nuance and having conversations around how women are not feeling cared for. They're not feeling seen or witnessed. They're undergoing traumas, unforeseen traumas, even in natural physiologic childbirth at the hands of doctors and nurses in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So to pick that apart in one conversation is not possible. But then we, we, we put, put it in the hands of hospital you know, administrators and policymakers, et cetera, who did never have stepped in a room in a hospital maternity unit. They don't even know what it's like. So we, doing our due diligence, are serving these other members of our society who don't necessarily have skin in the game. They just want to maximize profits and they want to minimize mortality. And as long as you have a healthy mom, healthy baby, the hospital has done their job. But that's the reason that women are seeking out people like me, because we don't see this as just healthy mom, healthy baby. We see this as a, a spiritual unfolding. We see this emotionally and mentally beyond just blood loss and infection rates. So it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky uh, uh, question, probably with a far more complicated answer than I can provide right now. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that I just learned there. Like you're saying, I have heard that, yeah, doctors make more money if you do more C-sections, but that's fascinating to hear. It's not really that, but it's maybe we can have a bed available sooner and that's can be part of the difference. Um, yeah, yeah, do you yeah, think... it's, it's, it's complicated. The finances of medicine are so impossibly complicated that uh, anybody who says, here's the answer, like they just don't understand how, how complicated the question is. Yeah, yeah. I've also heard that it's the insurance companies more than even a physician that governs, you know, what the care can be and like you said can put pressure on physicians to just kind of cya cover themselves and just do the induction just do the c-section just kind of get yeah. things moving out of fear of liability is that true well the liability question is separate from so yeah if it's a if it's a, an insurance company that's providing malpractice coverage yes that mm -hmm. would actually be a concern like the vaginal breach conversation is interesting so if a baby's butt down and i say hey you know, we can have a, we can do a C-section or you can do this vaginally. And they say, I've seen some great videos online of people giving birth vaginally. Let's do it that way. I can say, great. I'm trained to do that. I do workshops with Breach Without Borders. Stu Fishbein's a good friend of mine and a mentor of mine since, since residency. Rick's a freeze. I've got her on speed dial. David Hayes, like these are my people. Brad Boots Taylor down in Atlanta. And they're all experienced in, in attending Breach. Mila Chavira, another one in, in LA. The issue is that if I offer that, and then the woman does that and something bad were to happen, who is to blame? Mm -hmm. There is nobody to blame because this is just what happened. Now, could somebody have argued that had you done a C-section, would the head have become entrapped and would that baby be alive? Maybe. And given that 99% of doctors would offer C-section and not even just downright refuse the opportunity to, 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 to um, give birth to a baby but first, you have a consensus there that would agree and back up any prosecuting attorney and saying that you made the wrong call by even offering that. But then we're now we're looking at a violation of a patient's rights to two things, informed consent and the right to refuse treatment. Because no woman, um, no doctor can perform surgery on somebody without getting consent. And that consent can't be... Um, 
achieved through coercive language. You don't want your baby to die, right? Like, is that consent? No, that is coercion. <laughs> but they do that. We, you know, they so do it every day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But because that's the standard, everybody says, oh, that's just how it is. Well, it doesn't have to be how it is, but it is how it is because we've accepted that that's how care can be provided. Mm. On the other hand, that vaginal, that breech baby comes out, but first, nine times out of 10, everything is just fine. But, but because we've been swayed to believe that this is an inherently dangerous practice of a baby being born butt first, we've stopped teaching residents and midwives, for that matter, the maneuvers that might be required in case the baby does get caught up a little bit. There's plenty of things you can do. But since we're not teaching everybody, now for me to offer it, never having trained, never having experience with helping to relieve those maneuvers, you know, use those maneuvers to relieve the dystocias, like an arm wrapped around the neck called a nuchal arm. Or the, the chin in a sort of the neck in a hyperextension and caught on the pubic symphysis, there's things that can be done. But if I haven't tried to, or learned how to do them, then the prosecution might say, well, Dr. Riley, have you ever, um, was this your first breach? No, it isn't. Or, or, or yes, it is, right? Oh, okay. So what preparation did you have going into this? Oh, well, none really, but I, I wanted her to be able to exercise her, her, her autonomy. Did you counsel her that you never attended a breach or that you never got training in it? Well, no, but I read about it. Like, oh, so you never had experience, but you were telling her that it was low risk. I mean, so you can see how that line of questioning gets you in trouble. So instead of even jumping into the foray, a doctor could very easily just do a C-section. And, and what they always say is you never get in trouble for the C-section you did. It's always the C-section you didn't do that gets you in trouble. Yes. So, you know, we just have to consider all of these points. It's, uh, it's really, really it's a bad time to be an OBGYN. It's a bad time to be a pregnant woman, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it's like I got stressed just hearing your little attorney interrogation thing. Like, oh <laughs> no, my God, so I'm stressful. stressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. So like you said, an intense time to be on either side of the spectrum here. And uh, yeah, since we were talking about breach, I want to skip ahead a little bit to, I wanted to talk to you about breach because I had heard that they don't even teach that in medical school anymore. And so that's why it's all but impossible to find an OBGYN who will choose to deliver a breach vaginally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we also have to, we also have to distinct, you know, differentiate. Everybody talks about what we learn in medical school. You don't learn, can I cuss on this? Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> you, you don't learn shit in medical school. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we pay, I don't know how much, I, naturopathic school is not, not cheap either, but I'm like 500K in debt from my medical school alone. Yeah. I had no undergrad uh, loans because my mom worked for the university. I chose, I applied for the one school, University of Pittsburgh, and got in, and it was, that was it because my mom worked there, so I had free tuition. Mm. So I was lucky enough to not have that, but some people have even more debt than I do because they also had you know undergrad loans or master's degrees and everything else that rolled into their big their big coffer. So when you're in medical school, you're learning about physiology and pathophysiology, and then you rotate around and see what the specialties look like. And only then, when you've picked your specialty and you're lucky enough to match into a residency training program, do you actually get to really work, in, in the case of OBGYNs, really work with birth. So you wouldn't have learned it in medical school, mm -hmm. but in residency training programs, they want you to know the bare minimum to be able to work on a maternity unit anywhere in the United States. Or in a and, and of course in a clinical setting as well. And also, you're trained as a surgeon, so you need to be able to do all of the GYN surgery as well. Part of that curriculum is no longer how to manage 
a a um, a complication during a breech birth. We learn how to do complications with head down babies, left and right. You know, shoulder dystocias are far more common than a baby's head being trapped when a baby comes butt first. So you have a baby that comes down head first, their shoulder might get caught. We go through every scenario in the world to make sure that we can relieve that. But we don't learn a lick of how to, you know, op, you know how, how to attend to a breech baby. They get stuck a little bit in the, in the canal. So um, if we were just teaching that, even if it was like, listen, a woman comes into your triage and the baby's coming out butt first, you could rush them to the operating room, but you might actually do more harm than good because that baby is not crowning, but rumping. Their butt's coming out of the vagina. You can't stop labor. So you better at least know what to do if that baby's head gets stuck. And we're not teaching people to do that. So we're actually de-skilling OBGYNs in their OBGYN residency. And I don't know what I don't know what it would take to just bring in the simulators and work through some of these scenarios because a woman, again, still has to consent to a major surgery. You can't force her to have a C-section just because you weren't trained to manage any sort of dystocias or, or complications with breach. You know, you know what I mean? Mm. So it's 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 an area of an an area that we could easily improve, but um, you know, people don't want to touch it. They they just want to kind of hide in the shadows and keep doing C-sections and our, as our C-section rates increase up to upwards of, you know, 40% in some parts of the country, it's, it's pretty laughable. The rest of the world's mm-hmm. laughing at us as usual. <laughs> as usual. <laughs> <laughs> we're like seemingly ahead, but actually, no, we're not at all. Not at all. Yeah. 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 Well, we that's... love to think of, of our system as being so infallible. You know, mm-hmm. we spend nearly twice per capita on health insurance than the, than I'm sorry, not health insurance, but, but payment for health care than even second in, second in line. So yeah, it's, it's, um, <laughs> it's this giant monster. Everybody's like, let's just burn it down and start over. Like we still need that system, but let's let that system do it. And let's instead focus our attention to uphold and honor what midwives have been doing for so years. And many midwives, I would trust them with my birth and I'm more so than I would an OBGYN. Midwives yeah. are incredible. They're, they're such a boon for our society because they're willing to step into the fire and look at some of these things a little differently. They have way more breach training than most OBGYNs, um, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. And more flexibility too, right? In that they're generally operating from a home birth or a birth center. So they're not going to have some of the same restrictions, like for example, needing to lay in the bed the whole time. And yeah, yeah, yeah. they have more. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. They, that isn't actually even a restriction laying in the bed. Um, it's, it's like a false, there's like this illusion of safety in the hospital. And they say, you know, it's best to give birth on your back. Well, it says mm-hmm. who, right. if a woman is trying to get on her back or on her side or on all fours, that's the right way to give birth. Right. Um, so in that regard, you're right. I mean, they don't have somebody who, like a nurse who's forcing a woman onto her back. Most midwives, they're not even attending medicated births. So the woman is going to get into whatever, whatever position she wants. It's just starts roaring out her baby. And, yeah. and so that, that little snippet, like you, what you just said, is really, really critical. Mm-hmm. I also want to back up because I, it makes sense that to like get a C-section, the patient has to consent to it. But I feel like often when I'm hearing stories, it, it almost sounds like there isn't a choice. Like they're literally like, yeah, baby's heart rate is failing. Like you, we're going now. And yeah. so is that like a formal, like, are you signing a paper in that moment or how do they get that consent? They're not really getting consent. Um, they are getting a person to agree to the thing that the doctor wants them to do. But consent requires you to give somebody 
the full risks benefits alternatives using non-coercive language, mm-hmm. meaning your baby your baby could die. I think we should do the surgery. You don't want your baby to die, right? Like if a woman says, yeah, I want my baby to die, you'd think she's insane. If she says, no, I don't want my baby to die, she's she's sort of indirectly agreeing with your assessment and your plan. So, wow. you know, I think more responsible informed consent would be like, hey, listen, you sit down, you already have a relationship with them. First off, it's not, it's not the first time they're meeting you. They know you, you know them, you know their values, you've read their birth plan. And a birth plan is not a set in stone directions as to how this baby is going to be born. It is a reflection as to what's important to you. So you read their birth plan, you go in and you say, you know, Cassandra, I am really, really hoping we can, you know, have a vaginal birth. I know this is important to you and your partner. You guys are both sitting there agreeing, right? Yes, it's important to us. Okay. Here's what I know. I know that your baby's probably okay right now. And here's why I know that. Okay. See this thing on this, this monitor here? Yes. Okay. I might, I, I'm a little bit less optimistic that we might have a vaginal birth. Do you want to know why? Well, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what it looked like an hour ago. The babies, you know, we don't have a great idea as to what the software tells us, but if this starts keep, you know, going in this direction, there's, there's, there's very little we can say about the baby until we have the baby out and we can do an assessment. Mm-hmm. In my experience, here's what this means. Here's what this doesn't mean. I don't think it would be unreasonable if we started talking about the likelihood that you might need a C-section. And that lets you have the insight that in my personal experience, my professional experience, I might be a little bit concerned. But I don't go in and say, this baby's going to die unless you do what I tell you to do. Mm-hmm. Because that doesn't really respect you as an autonomous human. And again, even if I said, your baby's going to die unless you have a C-section, you have every right to say, well, I'm not having a C-section. And if you have a vaginal birth, I might be pissed that you didn't go with my, my recommendations and the baby looking just fine. I might feel a little a little hit to my ego or something like the patient didn't listen to me. I'm the, no, I've got a white coat on. I'm the captain of this ship. <laughs> on the other hand, if the baby dies, that's also not on the doctor because I at least have given you the risks, benefits, alternatives to everything. And then I've supported you in your decision. And if the baby dies, I did have one patient one time say, I'd rather the baby die than you cut into my belly. And the baby died. Mm-hmm. Now, I, we, could, we could shame her all day long, but is that what a new mother needs is shame because they didn't want you to do a major abdominal surgery in order to save the baby? Who knows what the right answer was there? But it's not our job without being in the arena, without any skin in the game to judge what this person does with their body. Yes, maybe you would have done something differently, doctor, but that's on you. Go get some therapy, go out for a jog and and sit with the fact that you struggle with a person making decisions on the, on behalf of their bodies and their babies. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time, when you have a great relationship with somebody, like we've gotten to know each other through your whole pregnancy. I've been with you in this, in this, um, you know, while you've been on the unit, and I've gone in and we've talked and talked and talked and talked. I haven't been on Amazon shopping. I've been in the room getting to know you and your partner. I've gotten my hands on your belly. I've closed my eyes. I've really felt you. Like, who is this person? And what is that little person inside of you? What do they need? Are they okay? I've asked you intuitively, do you feel like everything's okay? And then time and time again, we come back to the conversation and you know 
that I am doing my very best to care for you as a person. You're a, you are transitioning from maiden to motherhood. You are about to emerge as a totally new person on the other side of this. And now that I've gotten to know you, and I'm telling you, Cassandra, I love you. I want to make sure that this works. I love your partner. Like, we're in this together. I just want to share with you what my experience is when I see this thing or that thing. Then when I say, Cassandra, I think, I know that you are desperate to have a healthy baby after this. I think that we might be, you know, reaching a place where we can't get you that unless we do a C-section. Most of the time, 99%, 99.99999, I'm willing to put my money on that, are going to say, Dr. Riley, I know that you've been showing up for us. You've listened to me. You seem to understand what our goals are. If this is what you would recommend to your own partner, my wife, then let's do it. Mm -hmm. They're not going to say, wait a second, you're using this coercive language and I'm going to push back intentionally because I don't feel like I can trust you. So this is basic human making. Like, like we have to learn how to talk to one another and get to know one another. And I have to realize that my job is not to guarantee a good outcome. You're not entitled to a healthy baby after this. What you're entitled to is to be able to make decisions on behalf of you and your baby. And for me to support you and lend my expertise and experience in order to get you whatever your goal might be. And that's what we're lacking. That's where I think the medical school training needs to change. Because it's just basic it's just basic human compassion and showing up and realizing I'm not the captain of the ship. I'm here to lend my assistance when I think it's important and to give you all of the information for you to make an informed decision. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely lacking, which is so yeah. tragic. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was so good. Okay. A lot of people when I said I was doing this interview, had questions about how do you, if you decide you want to work with an OBGYN, how do you even go about finding someone that you know is truly on the same page and isn't going to, you know, in the third trimester suddenly be like, oh, but by the way, like, I know you wanted to do uh, delayed cord clamping and all this stuff, but like, we actually aren't. How do you avoid that? Because that seems to be what a lot of women find. Initially, the doctor is like, oh, yeah, that all sounds great. And then it all changes. I get this question all the time, Cassandra, and I don't know. I don't know how you can, I don't know how you can sort that out. Because when a person is under pressure, they tend to operate very differently than when you're meeting them casually in a coffee shop or in the clinic. So the first question I would have is, why are you married to the idea of having a hospital birth? Mm-hmm. And, the, and usually my first visits with clients who come to me wanting me to be a part of their care, normally they'll, you know, it'll, I just want to know what your story is. And if I, if you had a previous birth, let's say in a hospital or not in a hospital, let's say you had a home birth, I want to know how that birth went because that is definitely coloring your experience for the vision for this next birth. So I think getting back to storytelling, if your doctor doesn't want to know your story, that's probably a red flag. Because that, because they don't care about your story, they're going to dictate what what's ha- what, what's going to happen anyways. I think a lot of doctors like to call themselves holistic, or they like to call themselves, you know, patient, ba- mama, baby friendly. They use all these terms, but those are terms of the business of medicine. I think how a person shows up, how they sit and chat with you the first time that you get to know each other, I think that's where that's where you can really figure out where you know is this the person who's going to care for me in, in the way that I'm describing. So I, I want to know what is your what is the um, what is this predilection around having a hospital birth or having an OBGYN attend your birth? 
And then obviously the next question is, well, I hadn't really thought about having a home birth because I heard it was unsafe. Mm-hmm. Like, so have you considered having a home birth? Have you considered working with a midwife? And it's not my job to tell you, hey, you should, everybody should have a home birth because not everybody should have a home birth. You should have a home, uh, you should have a birth wherever you feel safe, whether it's in a hospital or otherwise. My wife and I had a hospital birth the first time around and it was super low intervention, but it was still not ideal. It's not really where my wife wanted to be. I think she was in a state of fear. I'm speaking for her. So that's never the right thing to do, speaking on behalf of a birthing woman. But I do think that there was a little bit of fear there based on our conversations. And it wasn't even, it wasn't even a conscious. She wouldn't say, I'm, I'm afraid. But there was something in the back of her brain that was saying, this place doesn't feel like a place to give birth, which is why so many people are now opting for a home birth where it's on your terms. No doctor walks into your house and puts their dirty feet up on your couch and says, here's how we're having a baby. A home birth doc, a home birth, home birth midwife, they're on your grass. They're on your turf. And it's house rules rule, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I would just want to explore that a little bit. And I think anybody who is using language that doesn't seem to be doing that job of risks, benefits, alternatives, when the language is coercive, when they're not looking you in the face and they seem sort of rushed to let you speak your from your heart, that's going to be a bad fit. Because mm-hmm. birth is not a medical procedure. Pregnancy is not a disease. If your doctor is giving the impression that this is just a medical procedure that they have to schedule, And I don't mean schedule like you're induced on this day or C-section on this day, although that sometimes happens as well. I mean, if they're talking to you like you're a sick person, that is not a person. That's not a doctor who's going to attend to you in the way that a healthy physiologic birth would, would I think, um, best be attended to. Today's episode is brought to you by Cozy Earth. If you're like me and live for a good night's sleep, these sheets will change your life. Made from super soft and sustainable viscose from bamboo fabrics, it is softer than cotton and has been on Oprah's favorites list four years in a row. I've used Cozy Earth sheets personally for almost a year and I will never go back to any other brand. Besides being the softest sheets I've ever used, they're also temperature regulating and Cozy Earth even offers a 100 night sleep test. That means you can try their sheets for 100 days and if you don't love it, send it back and get a full refund. Your bedroom should feel like a sanctuary and your sleep is sacred. And that's why I believe it's so important to create a bedroom environment that feels cozy, comfortable, and relaxing. Right now, you can take 40% off of your Cozy Earth order with code GODDESSPODCAST. Just go to CozyEarth.com, find your favorite set of sheets, and use code GODDESSPODCAST to save 40%. And be sure to send me a message on Instagram and let me know if you're as obsessed as I am. I think from what I've heard women say is they often don't really want to do the hospital route, but that's all their insurance will pay for, which is yeah. even more upsetting, right? Because it's not even a decision they want, but they're like, I don't have five grand to pay a midwife. And that right. just shows how screwed up it right. all is. Yeah. I mean, you know, midwives over, over the years have been permitted to continuing attending to births because it wasn't the domain of medicine until you know, mid-19th century into especially the early 20th century, through the Flexner Report, the AMA, etc., they essentially effectively forced women into hospitals. And we saw all the stats started declining, like mortality was worse, neonatal morbidity and mortality was worse, um, infection rates were worse in the hospitals. And since then, we've sort of straightened that out, but we haven't completely straightened that out because personally, I don't think birth belongs in the hospital. But if you consider the role of midwives over the years, over the ages, has always been to attend to to the poor and destitute who have nowhere else to go because the medical system couldn't make money off of poor immigrants, for example. Mm. 
So midwives have been doing this work for years, but now midwifery is being is is really only accessible to those with money. And that's a problem. It's it's almost like a co-opt in in a way where the system's like, yeah, sure, you can go see a midwife. That's fine to have a midwife. But they know that they're not losing that many people because they've flipped the tables. Now you're required to have insurance in order to access the medical industrial complex. So I, I looked up some data on this because I'm releasing an, a podcast episode soon here on the history of women in, in the healing space. And a lot of the uh, data around um, where people are having birth, I think, is, is quite interesting. So let me bring this up here for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are 12,805 certified nurse midwives. And then there's a roughly 3,900 CPMs. This is back in 2020. CNMs are basically hospital-based midwives, for lack of better terms. They can attend out-of-hospital births, but the vast majority of women giving birth in, in the home are being attended to by CPMs, LMs, or um, even totally independent midwives. I call them radical midwives because they're my favorite. <laughs> so out-of-hospital births increased from 0.8% in 2004 to 1.6% in 2017, and it's predominantly among white women. And um, the vast majority of women who paid for uh, birth at home paid out-of-pocket, sometimes birth centers will be covered by insurance, but you're absolutely right. I think our midwife charged us $4,500. I mentioned our first was in the hospital. The second came at home, two hours of labor. We were doing breath work. The baby just came out asleep on my wife's chest. We didn't even get in the birth tub, but wow. it cost us $4,500 for that experience. Did we need to pay $4,500? Probably not, but it was what we chose to do, and that and that's that. So you're right. It is... Um, it is there is a, a barrier to entry that is very cost prohibitive for most people, meaning that those people who are suffering most at the hands of the hospital system, namely women of color and poor people who are you know too stupid or whatever to speak up for themselves. They don't speak English, for example. I'm saying too stupid because that's the way that the, the system treats them, right? Mm-hmm. If you're not a white middle upper class person, you're probably not getting the best care in hospitals. We know that. Like that's mm-hmm. not a surprise to anybody. But that the people that probably are suffering the most at the hands of our medical system are the same people that would probably get better care, but it's cost prohibitive care in the home at the at the hands of a midwife. Jeez. Wow. That's just like just to see that it did a full 180 where midwives used yeah. to be the ones who helped anyone. And there I mean, there are some midwives that still do kind of like donation based, but that's sure lesser yeah really unless you're a, like you said a radical midwife meaning like an unlicensed midwife yeah um, that's right but yeah yeah what a change what a change in the times you're right and and the, the onus people take from this and they're like why do midwives charge so much money the average salary for a cpm that's the people the, the vast majority of births who are attended at home are by cpms the average let me see i have it right here the average um salary that let's say the median salary a median is not an average a median is if you collected a if you had all 100 midwives lined up what would the one and if you had them lined up from lowest to highest salary annual salary the one in the dead center you know round number 50 that's the median mm-hmm. so the median salary for a certified nurse midwife is 100,000 roughly 111,000 the median salary for a CPM is $51,000 wow so we're expecting now that the burden of this this sort of defunct, profit-motivated medical system, 
that the saviors of that of, of the women who most need this care are going to be women that are only taking in $51,000 a year by giving away charity work, you know, through the lens of charity, they're giving away care. Like, that's not what this is about. What this is about is that our nation is hemorrhaging dollars towards a medical industrial complex that is not providing the best care and is actually making it cost prohibitive for many women to to achieve this care. And, and when we look at the big hospital systems like UPMC, I love to pick on them because that's my hometown. <laughs> UPMC, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Yes, home of the University of Pittsburgh Medical School, which is one of the best medical programs in the world. They could do anything they wanted. They could provide revolutionary care. They could lead the revolution because they are the largest hospital system probably in the world at this point. And they are a nonprofit, so they're not paying any taxes on any of the properties that they own across the multiple states and regions and, and countries. Well, I guess outside of the country, their nonprofit status probably doesn't mean anything. But my point being that they're nonprofits, so they're paying less taxes, of course, and we're not going to get into the politics here. But their CEO, Jeffrey Romoff, a couple years ago, he just stepped down, but he was making $10 million a year. So what if we gave him a million dollars a year and took those $9 million <laughs> and distributed it to the CPM so that they could provide charity care? I mean, like, there are so many stupidly easy ideas. And that idea, by the way, wouldn't work. The problem is, is that our, our, this MIC, the medical industrial complex, the incentive structures there are not really in alignment with improving the, even the basic metrics of maternal mortality, morbidity, neonatal mortality, morbidity. We're not really interested in that until the, the people in the C-suites are making their bottom line. And that's, that's actually the beef I have with the insurance companies, the first pharmaceutical companies in these big hospital systems. So we really are just a number. <laughs> if you give you birth are. in that, yeah. you really are just some number that helped maybe pay some CEO's salary. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and you gave us, a, you gave a, you, you gave OBGYNs a reason to exist. I mean, that's it. That's it. I come, I'm coming off very cynical, <laughs> no. by the way. I'm like a really nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, the thing is, is I think it's like this is depressing. Like. Um, there's no way to really talk about all this without it being literally kind of depressing because it's sad, the state of it all. Yeah. 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 So we believe you. We know you're really a positive person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't work in the system anymore. So it lets me really start to kind of noodle and like really put my money where my mouth mouth is. And since we are speaking about midwives, when I stepped out of the model and, and, the, and the, the big system at large, I took a huge pay cut. But... I thought to myself, oh, I could start a home birth practice. I want to do home birth. This is like when you attend a home birth, like I said, it like fills you up with all of that joy and the, the mystique again of birth and the possibilities of how we can care for one another. And it just, it's like sort of like being out in the woods. You just like get this reinvigoration. So it was like, man, I could do that. I could do this. But then I realized that if I collect all of my, my kit and I start going to home births, I'm competing with other midwives. And if I really believe in the midwifery model of care, why advertise myself as you know, better than the midwives. That's what competition is. So I decided I'm not going to do that. I'm going to start a collaborator program and I'm going to offer back-end support for any midwife out there who needs a collaborative physician so that their patients don't have to go into the MIC, which is ineffective. It's, it's, it's cost prohibitive for many people. And it's just filtering more and more of our resources into this big MIC. So instead, you just call me, you get me on the phone, I talk you through the scenario, you counsel your patient and your client continues on in their pregnancy without having to, to, to think twice about stepping into the system. Hmm. So through that, I am saving midwives a lot of money and time and resources 
but I can't just be a one-man show doing this. Like more and more docs need to start listening to their truths and realizing that you are just a pawn in this whole big machine or a cog, let's say, to keep the metaphor complete. You're a cog. Why not, why not take a step back and help to, to not just fix the machine, but create something over here that is really supportive of the people that we went to school to support that isn't necessarily padding the pockets of Jeffrey Romoff, who's sitting in his palace and of $10 million a year palace, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Jeffrey, if you're out there, but you stink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, let's. Yeah. No, no words for that. But that's really cool. I like that you really created kind of a whole new realm for yourself that allows you to still do so much and to support more holistic birth keepers. Um, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's, it's a work in progress. It's something I'm working on. I have a couple of NDs actually that are in my program as well because they want to be able to bounce things off of doctors without their patients going to the doctor in the first place. Like mm -hmm. I'm saying a doctor, like in the typical way, the MDs or DOs or whatever, they're working in the system. Mm -hmm. And um, that collaboration is really, I think, key. Like it takes a community, but we don't really have a community. We have a, uh, a poker table and you have to pay the, the uh, you have to pony up if you want to play. And a lot of people don't want to do that anymore. So No, we don't. <laughs> so interesting. Um, I've got some listener questions for you, but I think the last like sure. um, big question before we get to that is just what would you like to see change in standard obstetric care? <laughs> Besides everything. <laughs> Besides everything? Yeah. <laughs> I... Um... I think I've I think I've said a lot that I'd like to change, but I don't think it's as easy as us just like doing less fetal monitoring or doing less C sections. Like that's not really the question. I think that what we need to change. So if you so the way I like to look at things is I may not be the smartest person at looking at the details, but if we take a step back and then another step back and then another step back, and we start asking the bigger questions like why is it like this? The reason it's like this is because I'll I'll reiterate something I said before. We are treating pregnant women. We are treating pregnancy as a disease mm -hmm. and we're viewing birth as a medical procedure, which is why women are, whether they like to believe it or not, they've assumed, they're, they're, they're presuming and accepting this uh, advertised safety and comfort provided by hospitals. Because you're sick, you should, because pregnancy is disease and hospitals care for sick people, you should be in a hospital to give birth. And because those negative stories stand out more than anything about the baby dying or mom dying or whatever else, there is a presumption that there's safety promised by the hospital system. But I can say for, for darn certain that a lot of women, even when they have a totally natural physiologic pregnancy or they have a totally, totally easy breezy, I'm using air quotes, easy breezy C-section because it's never very easy breezy, but compared to the horror stories we hear about the bad things that could happen, a lot of us are like, Phew. hey, at least we didn't have those bad things happen. Ha healthy mom, healthy baby. But then you ask them two years later when they're pregnant again, there's something locked up in there. There's this trauma from being spoken to or a non-consensual vaginal exam or an anesthesiologist telling you to ignore the nausea while you're getting a C-section and you can feel some of the pain. So they give you some sedatives and, and this whole traumatic thing that happens. You, you talk to women after those experiences and they're like, something was subtly off about that hospital experience. So even though the hospital advertises healthy mom, healthy baby, and maybe that was your experience, 
on the spiritual, emotional, or mental levels, there's a lot of other trauma that gets stored up in there. And it's disruptive to how we integrate into this new position in society as a mother. You went from maiden to motherhood. There was this archetypal trans transformation. And now that you're there, it doesn't feel very good. Why does it not feel very good for many people? Perhaps because we don't respect moms, especially single moms. Perhaps we didn't respect you throughout your entire childbirth process. Perhaps nobody was really consenting or counseling you on anything. And perhaps people were, were, were kind of um, brushing aside your concerns about the blues, about this depression that was ensuing afterwards. They just wanted to give you a pill, an SSRI or something like that. Nobody really sat and, and asked you, like, tell me about how your birth was. Because when we do that, it starts unlocking things that we didn't know were there. And it's all, all of this trauma, everything was a product of us treating pregnancy as a disease and birth as a medical procedure, period. Mm. So that's what we need to do. We need to change our language. I didn't deliver your baby. You birthed your baby. Mm -hmm. One example. It's not a pizza. It's a baby. <laughs> um, yeah, that's what I would change is I think getting a, a collective reimagining of what birth is, which is not a disease. It's a beautiful, very natural thing that your body can do. You're not broken once you get pregnant. Yes. And if that was the general understanding of it, women also would be more likely to be able to stand in their power and know what they do consent to, you know, but a lot of women do get pregnant and they seem so frazzled, like, oh, I don't really know. I'm just going to trust what my doctor says. Mm -hmm. And that also feeds into that exact problem. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. So I've got some really juicy questions. Um, we'll try to get through as many as possible, but I don't know that any of these can be answered quickly, but, um, let's see. This first one is, are there real risks to going past 42 weeks gestation? <sighs> okay. Well, that's a good question. Um, let me, um, let me start by saying that when the doctor tells you you're probably this many weeks along, right? You got that positive pregnancy test. You guys are over the moon. You've done your awesome reveal on Instagram, blue lines. You got it. You're, <laughs> you're finally pregnant. This is amazing. You go into the clinic and the first thing they do is let's say, okay, congrats. Let's check you with an ultrasound. And they stick that probe in your vagina and they're looking for a little embryo called a fetal pole with a little heartbeat. Once you see that, you know you're pregnant. If we don't see that, we're not sure if you're pregnant or if you're going to be able to have a full-term baby. It could just be what we call a chemical pregnancy, blight of ovum, um, could be an ectopic pregnancy, whatever. But let's assume you've got that uterus, got like a little fluid in there, and you got a little embryo with a little yolk sac, and uh, and you've got a heartbeat. Well, they're going to give you a, a gestational age, which is based on the whole population. And then they're going to ask you about your period. And they're going to use your period to determine when did you conceive based on when your last period was. And that that the method of determining when your last period was is based on a 28-day cycle. And I can tell you for sure that nobody listening has a 28-day cycle consistently. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of you. <laughs> and the reason I say that is that unless you were tracking your cycle and you knew that on the dot, bam, day 28, I am now bleeding again. And that happened every single cycle for your entire life. You can tell, you can, you can, you know, hear just from the way I'm saying it that it's probably not exactly 28. In fact, one cycle might be a little bit longer or a little bit shorter, and we just don't know. So... We base it on the average 28-day cycle, and we give you your due date. So your due date is going to be whatever. Uh, today's July 11th is your due date. 
So that would be the day that you are 40 weeks on the dot. That means that two weeks from today is your 42-week mark. The issue with the determination of your due date, which I call a guest date because very few people deliver, you know, have their, sorry, there I go with the deliver, give, have birth, uh, give birth on the due date. Although my wife did, and I was like, well, now I have to eat my words. But um, it does happen. You know, it's maybe 10 to 20% of people are right on their due date. Um, so the problem with using this determination based on a 28-day cycle is you have to give or take two weeks from that guest date. So when you've reached 42 weeks, now they say it's like, it's like as if you've turned into a pumpkin now and the baby's about to die at any moment. The risk of, your, uh, of IUFD at 41 weeks is something like, I'm going to look it up for you right now, it's something like 1 in 10,000, right? It's way, 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 way less than, um, than, than, we're, than we're sort of led to believe. So, so even after, um, so let's say, let's say that it was 1,000. I actually think it's probably closer to 1,000, but let's say it was 1 in 1,000 at 41 weeks. At 42 weeks, so 1 in 1,000 is 0.1%. That means there's a 99.9% .9 chance your baby won't die after you reach 41 weeks. So grapple with that number. Wow. Like we don't even go into the casino with those odds because we know that we're not going to win. 99.9% right. <laughs> chance you're going to be fine. So let's say that it was, um, let's even say, let's actually make this even easier. Let's say it's 1%. So that means there's a 99% chance you're, you're going to have, you're going to be just fine. Your baby's not going to die. Let's now go to 42 weeks and it's double so now it's 2%. It's twice the risk, twice the risk, which is what your doctors will tell you. But that's called a relative risk. It's twice the relative risk, but it's still two in a thousand. If you thought that you could walk into a casino and put all of your money on black 36 on roulette, you put a, a million bucks on there, you're going to walk out a billionaire and you are so sure that you're going to win that roulette wheel that you put all of your money there, that would be as insane as presuming that your baby's going to die at 42 weeks based on a 2% risk. Mm -hmm. Now, the other caveat is that it's not my job to tell you what risks you're willing to take or not take. It's my job to say, listen, it's low risk. I suggest that maybe we do some fetal assessment or whatever else. And then we might be able to, you know, uh, determine, oh, no, maybe the baby would be better outside of the uterus, right? I'm, I've just got some data here from the AJOG, which is the big gray journal. For a person who's had, who's, who's, who's got one baby, the risk of, of uh, IUFD, which is death inside the uterus, out of 10,000 is 37. So that is point, oh my God, let me do the math there. It is 0.37% if my, if my math is correct. That's a, mm -hmm. an extremely low number. So it's my job to say, listen, you have way better chance of this baby not dying. But just to be sure, we can do some non-stress testing, which is when they hook you up to a little fetal heart rate monitor, and they just look to see if there's certain figures like variability and accelerations, et cetera, no drops in the, in, the, uh, in the heart rate. And the reason for that is that even though your due date was two weeks ago, we know that there's a give or take of two weeks. So perhaps instead of being 42 weeks, maybe you're actually only 40 weeks. We just don't know. So we can do some additional antenatal surveillance. We can do a BPP, which is an ultrasound to look for fetal movement and fluid and all that other stuff. But if all of that stuff checks out, the risk of you having a, a you know baby dying in the next week after one of those tests is, is, is sufficiently low 
that you have a better chance of having a, a you know a healthy baby and nothing bad happening. But at 42 weeks, we could also start talking about like, you know, let's start getting your body into labor. Let's maybe start encouraging that process along because we don't know what the future holds. And we don't have to just induce you either with these these sort of synthetic chemicals. We can start, you know, what my, my Mexican mother-in-law would say is, you know, the way that you have your baby, you want your baby to come, wash your floors. And the, <laughs> the idea there being that if you're on all fours, you're bringing your knees up to your chest, you're moving. My wife and I were still hiking up until the day we had our baby, the first baby. The second, she was a little more sore, but it's very active, like still cleaning the house, taking care of the toddler and um, getting on the floor, cleaning the floors, getting the whole space ready for a home birth. That actually brought on labor, I think, a little bit earlier. So so it's not like, so it's not my job to say it's unsafe to have, you know, to go past 42 weeks. It's my job to say, listen, here's what we know and don't know. And it's, and, and I've got your back if you have any questions going forward. And if you decide you want to keep going, that's, that's great. Let's, I'll support you in that decision. And we keep going together. Mm-hmm. That's nuts that the risk is that low. And yet there are, I think there are laws that doctors and midwives have to abandon care if it reaches over 42 weeks. Well, the midwives are especially in a tough place because since they've won many, in many states, they've won licensure, not every state, but most states. They have very, very strict guidelines that they have to follow. Otherwise, they might lose their license. And if you don't have a license and you're practicing in a state that requires a license, then practicing medicine with, uh, without a license is a felony. So, yeah, a lot of like California's really famous, you know, very popular example to cite where there's a lot of maternal conditions that you simply aren't allowed to attend their birth as a midwife anymore. So they're forced to go into the hospital. So a lot of midwives will encourage your labor to go on a little bit earlier even though the body might not be fully ready because they know that you don't want to be in the hospital and you want to have a home birth. So eating dates, red raspberry leaf tea is an awesome, you know, tea. You just take a couple glasses starting at 36, 37 weeks. You can even start earlier if you wanted. It's a uterotonic and it kind of just gets the, the uterus ready, but movement exercises, all those types of things are, are also really, really helpful. So again, it requires obviously more of a conversation, but I do a lot of this type of counseling every day. Mm-hmm. So wild. Um, another one that's really uh, big that people talk about is group B strep. And mm-hmm. if you do come up being positive for group B strep, is antibiotics the only option that you have? That's a good question. Um, I think that the, um, so so let's let's look at the data because a part of my counseling is always, here are the risks, benefits, alternatives. And around 10 to 30% of women are colonized by group B strep. And they have about, if you're colonized, you have about 50% chance of passing that bacteria, which can live in the, it generally lives in the colon. So it comes out through the anus and your body's covered in bugs. Everybody fails to remember that. But <laughs> even inside your bladder, we say it's sterile. Your urine, not, urine is not sterile. So there's, there's bugs in your urethra. There's bugs in your vagina, into your cervix, up in the uterus. Like there's bugs everywhere in, in inside the anus, you know, into the, into the rectum as well. So groupie strep probably has walked its way out of the anus, is around the perineum, gets into the vagina, etc. And if you're colonized, which is collected by a swab that goes in the vagina into the anus, you have a 50% chance of passing that bacteria to the newborn during a vaginal delivery. So if the baby gets colonized, there's a 1% to 2% chance that they're going to develop early onset GBS disease. Um, and so we can reduce the risk of, of the baby developing 
early onset GBS disease from that 1 to 2 percent to about 0.25 percent if we use antibiotics, antibiotics in, uh, in labor. There haven't been a lot of great studies, though, that have been published. And so um, if the baby does get early onset GBS disease, there's about a 2 to 3 percent mortality um, risk for term infants and up to 30 percent for infants born before 33, 33 weeks. So then the question is, is, are those risks something a woman is willing to accept in labor? Because that means if, if you've got GBS, there's a 50% chance of passing the bacteria to a newborn. And then of the 50% of babies that are colonized, only 1% to 2% of those get this early onset disease. But if they do get that disease, it could be catastrophic. So again, we're back to the roulette wheel. I mean, that's a pretty darn low chance that a baby would die of early onset GBS disease. And if you ask a, a neonatologist, one of the, the newborn baby doctors, they would say the risk is not worth it. But they also see all of the babies with this, this terrible disease versus a lot of women who are like, screw it, I'm not even going to get checked. Like my wife didn't even get the swab in pregnancy. And the risk of something like that happening is probably the same risk of you being in a massive car accident going on the highway. But if you were in the massive car accident, it would have been nice to have known that I could have prevented that. Mm. You see? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So to answer her question directly, um, I would probably, I would probably um, consider, you have to consider that if there's a lot of group B strep and there shouldn't be a lot of group B strep, there's probably a gut issue. And I always have my women eating a lot of, my, my clients eating a lot of um, fermented foods, pre and probiotics, not through pharmaceuticals, but actually just through dietary changes way before they even get pregnant because I want their gut biome to be as beautiful as possible because the baby's going to be adopting this from the mom during childbirth. I mean, especially if it's a vaginal birth, it's a little harder with C-section unless you swab them with vaginal fluids afterwards. But, um, but the, the point being that is if you do have group B down there, it's not a guarantee that the baby's going to get it. You could consider, um, I might consider something like a, I don't have any, I don't have any solutions that are coming just to mind, but what I would, pro I would probably be suggesting that if at, let's say at 36 weeks, you checked positive for GBS, you might just want to go to the store and get some really, really good probiotics to help balance out the floor of the vagina. Mm -hmm. um, the risk being so low that I actually generally don't recommend anything anyways. And even if you do know that you're positive, again, the risk is so low that the baby is going to get it. That, um, you know, if a woman is like determined, um, then we just have to do some digging. And what I can do is I'll send you some information from some midwives that I work with, and maybe they've tried something else in the past um, that that's been helpful. Sorry, I don't have like an answer. I just haven't really ever had to do that for a client because mm -hmm. they're usually like, ah, the risk is so low. I'm not going to do it. And and generally nothing happens anyways. So Yeah. No, but I think your answer was great because again, you shared the risks and considerations and now it's the mama's got to make her decision. So yeah, I think that was really well said. Well, and, and, and also to, to just add on, I appreciate that. Thank you. To add on to that, you know, you can Google all these things all over the web. Midwives have been using different tonics and different remedies. There's a lot of homeopathic remedies that can be really helpful. Um, the problem is that we don't have the data to support that. So you might as well try it. It may not do any harm, right? But we don't have any data to support it working or not working. It's all through the anecdotal empirical wisdom of midwives. 
So generally, whenever these things come up, I'll just I go I go to my collaborator program. And I'm like, guys, what are you what are you doing for DBS? They don't want antibiotics, but you know they they want to try something a little different. And they all have different answers, but I haven't stuck with any of those answers because they're doing just what anybody would do, which is like going to Susan Weed's guys, her her herbal you know herbal guides or whatever else, and just finding something that might help. But we don't know if you do it, do this, you know, willow bark or something, and then recheck in five weeks, is it going to be gone? We don't know. But what I can say is that your immune system is intimately related to your gut. And if we can get your gut back online in the next five to six weeks before you have your baby, there's a good chance that that group B strep is going to be nullified mm-hmm. by, by a boost in your, um, in your beneficial bacteria. So that, that's always my approach is to do less supplementing and more reconstituting through salutogenesis, your body's ability to, to balance itself back out. Mm-hmm. It's a really good question though. Yeah. That's the exact advice that a midwife gave me, which was, yeah, just eating sauerkraut, you know, real pickles and yeah, just build up the healthy bacteria, which is exactly, exactly. Sounds too simple, but it really can be that simple. Well, these bacteria are multiplying way more quickly than a lot of other things in the body. So you, you start supplying them with the right things and your biome can rapidly shift over a matter of couple of, of a couple of weeks. So I do that. I do likewise. I do that for recurrent vaginal infections, recurrent bladder infections. Your body can, can fix itself. You just have to give it the right resources. Exactly. Exactly. Another woman was asking about the benefits of delayed cord clamping and how long to keep the cord attached to baby? I, I, I say keep it attached as long as you want. Mm-hmm. I see absolutely no reason to detach the cord. Unless the cord's super short and the placenta hasn't yet to, you know, birthed, you know, the baby's really, really struggling with breaths. We need to resuscitate the baby. We need to get the baby over to the warmer or call paramedics or whatever. Let's clamp and cut the cord. But you know, they're on the on the medical side of it. A lot of the perinatologists and the neonatologists will say, you can get too much blood to the baby from the placenta after birth, right? So their hematocrit goes way up, right? Like that's that's the one horror story that they've seen. On the other hand, why not let the baby remain attached to its own life support while you're resuscitating the baby? So what I always say is if that baby's crying, like our baby was APGORs of like 10 and 10. Like it was the it was the best score I'd ever heard. And I think the midwife was fluffing me up a little bit, like, you know, wanting to impress me. But even if it was nine and 10, that's like a really, really good baby on transition from inside to out. And, but she was asleep. She was totally asleep. So had we thought that, oh my God, the baby's not crying right away or whatever else, instead of just waking her up and getting her to be like, ah, I'm fine guys, let me sleep here on mama. Um, then we might've clipped and, you know, clamp and cut and get that baby oxygen and all this other stuff. But sometimes we just need to be a little bit more patient and just let the baby do the baby's thing. The baby's been fine all this time. And now suddenly the baby's out and the baby isn't going to be able to take a breath. Like it's, it's nonsense. But, um, I generally, even during a C-section, we'll let the baby, you know, we'll, we'll leave the cord intact for as long as possible. Um, some, you know, even the idea of like a lotus birth, keeping the placenta attached, it wasn't for us, but I don't see why not, you know, as long Mm -hmm. as you're, is there's not like an infection in the placenta or something where we actually want to cut off the baby's, you know, a source to possibly an infection. I don't really see, I don't know why we're still squabbling about this. Just, it just leave the baby attached. Like, who mm-hmm. cares? I don't know why we're, the medical system is so caught up with that one. But I, I remember getting pushback in the hospital when I was still in residency because they were like, it's 60 seconds. Now cut it and clamp it. Like, 
what does it matter? Like, right. why, why are we all, like, I, what I do is I, the baby comes out, placenta's still inside. I say, I'll be back in a little bit. I go back and see how things are going. Oh, placenta's out, great. Bleeding's under control, no lacerations, bye. But instead, we have to, like, facilitate. We need to be in control of every step. And knowing that we're not in control of any step, we want to be able to control what we can control, which is let's get the placenta out as quickly as possible. And it's just not necessary. It's just another thing that we do because we want to feel like we're important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been shocked to hear that some physicians now give Pitocin just to get just to get the uh, placenta out. And I'm like, y'all, it's going to come out in like 20 to 60 minutes anyway. Like, right. like why? Right. right. <laughs> why? Why? And it's a synthetic medicine. I mean, yeah. Why, why do that? Why are we, why are we creating problems for ourselves? And that, that's what I was taught is to get the placenta out as quickly as possible. Now, of course, if there's a really good reason to get the placenta out, let's do it. But that's not usually the case. Usually there's no reason at all. Just leave it and go back later. Um, another question was, why is the hep B shot basically always given, even if the mother is negative? Yeah. So... <laughs> Interesting little question about this one, because when I was in residency, you have to rotate with, um, we do a pediatrics rotation just to see what the, the peds people do in the early days of life. And it came up all the time. It came up all the time. Why are we immunizing against hepatitis B? Which would be like the second shot in this baby's first day of life. Cause they get, a lot of babies are getting vitamin K, which is a, I can talk about that too, but the hepatitis B thing, I have absolutely no idea. So I did my own research. You know, I'm, I'm a bright young resident. And when moms would start, would ask me about it, like, what, like, do we have to do that? Like, we don't really want to have another shot right now. We kind of just want to go home. I would say, yeah, if, of all of the shots, and I was pretty, I was like pretty vaccine pro back then, which has obviously changed for a variety of reasons. But the, um, I was like, of all of the vaccines, I, w- I don't think I would get that one. Mm-hmm. And, um, so then the peds attending went in after me one time when I'd been giving this information out to people left and right. And she, later that day, in front of everybody, like not the parents and everything, but all the other residents, she tore me a giant hole in my face. Like she just ripped through me because like, how could I give out this incorrigible advice? How could you? Do you know how horrible it is for a baby to get hepatitis B, etc.? And I put my face back on and I said, well, how are they going to get hepatitis B? She's like, we don't know what their household is like. We don't know if somebody's going to kiss the baby and they're going to get hepatitis. And I was like, are you suggesting, I mean, in my head, I didn't say this, but it was like, are you suggesting that they're going to get it from like grandma who has undiagnosed hepatitis B and is like face sucking the baby? Like I through (laughs) saliva, like I, I just didn't even know what her argument was. But I left it because it was the first time of many times that I got called to the principal's office, my program director. And I had to like just sit back and allow this thing to happen. So I never mentioned it anymore. I just said, you know, you might want to talk to the peds people about that one. Um, Personally, I probably wouldn't get it just because I don't know. I don't know. It just doesn't seem like the right thing to do, but I wouldn't ever actually like counsel them. Um, I would just say, why don't you ask the peds people? So the hepatitis B thing, I have no idea. We haven't gotten any vaccines for our second. We got a couple vaccines for our first, but I stopped it right before varicella because I was like, every time we take her to the doctor, they just shoot her with shots and we have to hold her down. And she looks into our eyes as we deceive her and tell her everything's okay. 
So, you know, the conversation around vaccines is a really challenging one, I realize, for people. But at day one of life, when the baby comes out, we put the baby on a warmer, we clean the baby up, we put a little cap on the head, because heaven forbid you see that the cone shape, you know, shows this incredible struggle and the incredible physiology and anatomy of birth, where the head misshapes in order to get through and out. Um, but then we, we put the goop on the eyes, we give them a shot in the foot of vitamin K, and then we wrap it up like a little burrito and place it on their chest and we say, look, job well done. But in the first moments of life, this baby has just emerged. Why are we inflicting pain on an innocent little baby? Um, yeah. Can I share like a couple of the stats about vitamin K real quick? Please, yeah. <clears throat> so the, the risk, the thought is that if we don't give vitamin K, there might be bleeding inside the layers of the skull of the baby or even inside the brain, intracranial bleeding. And um, the risk of this happening is about 80 in 100,000 live births wow. in low or mid-income countries. It's nine in 100,000 in high-income countries, presumably because we have better nutritional status. So that means that I'm going to stick a sharp object into your newborn baby's foot before you're even with her or him, before you really even get connected to them. That golden hour is going to be paused until we shoot them in the foot with vitamin K because of a risk of 9 in 100,000. So maybe you want that. Maybe you're okay with that risk and you don't want to get the vitamin K. Maybe you're not okay with that 9 in 100,000 risk and you want the vitamin K. I don't care, but we are not presenting that information at all. Not to mention, this also goes into the GBS conversation, giving you antibiotics messes with your gut biome. It messes up your gut biome, and then you're going to have a baby that adopts your gut biome whenever the baby comes out vaginally. And not to mention all the other issues with messing with the gut biome. Likewise, with this, we are stabbing this baby in the foot with something that is only going to prevent, it's going to drop the risk to less than 9 in 100,000. So we have to consider what are the other possible um, risks of sticking a baby with a sharp needle. I mean, why isn't that an important part of the conversation? Do babies not have feel pain? Like, I just don't, I don't understand. I don't understand why that isn't a part of our counseling. So mm -hmm. for other people that want vitamin K, there's oral drops or you just don't do anything. And nine out of a hundred thousand are going to have a problem and the rest are going to be just fine. Oh my God. It's just insane. Like I didn't realize really all these is. numbers were this, like just the, the risk is so low. And yet in that moment, if you were to say like, I don't really think they, the baby needs it, they'd be like, oh, excuse me. It would be really like upsetting, you know, to some doctors. Yeah, it would be. And, and, you know, that's on you, man. Like, like if we want to say we practice evidence-based medicine, which many of us don't, and maybe, maybe, maybe we shouldn't necessarily always be, be practicing evidence-based because the way we, we perverse it to a generalizable number that every single person should comply with. That's kind of how people say it's evidence-based. Well, that's fine. It's just one part of the conversation though. Um, if we want to say we're practicing that in the very least, we need to consider like the risks, benefits, and alternatives to this. And when the risk is nine in a hundred thousand, I think the, the patient deserves to know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That would definitely change. I'm sure a lot of mama's opinions. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> Wow. Okay. I'm glad you brought in the vitamin K. I didn't have a specific question for that one, but like you said, those are the two they want to give mm. right out the gate. Yeah. Yeah. 
The last question someone asked was about the trend of wanting to break the water. And mm. why is that now so common? And what are the risks to doing this if it doesn't stimulate labor? Yeah, so there's a couple of things we can do to get labor going. Like if you've started labor, but things haven't really gotten anywhere, there's a couple of things we can do. The one that everybody talks about is Pitocin. The other thing is we can do with an called an amniotomy or breaking the water versus the water's naturally opening. And we do that by, we've got these like little fingertips with like a kind of a hook on the end. You just go in there and you pop the bag, just like a water balloon, but it's super taut. It's usually very easy to do it. Or you have a, a stick with a little hook and you just go in there and you pop it. You're not like cutting the baby or anything. It's, it's relatively benign. The issue is that we're inserting ourselves and intervening when it's probably not necessary. And I always have an issue with that because for us to say that we are smarter than nature has never worked out. It hasn't worked out anywhere in our society, in agriculture, in medicine, etc. So the question would be, why are we trying to augment labor? Why are we trying to speed things up? What are we worried about? And generally speaking, it's, oh, you're just not progressing. We need to get things going. Well, why are you not progressing? It's because your body is not meant to be in labor yet. You're not in labor yet, period. But now that you're in the hospital and you have your epidural and you're at three centimeters and they've got Pitocin running, now all of those other things on the medical, in the medical current, right? You're on the train. It's hard to get the train to stop. So now that you've entrusted us with these previous interventions, I think we should probably get things going. Okay. So we open the waters up. A couple things can happen. Normally we don't open the waters unless the head of the baby is engaged in the pelvis meaning there's not a lot of space there between the, um, the vagina, let's say, and the head of the baby. The baby's head's pretty locked down in, their, in the pelvis. You open the water, a bunch of fluid comes out, and now the baby's head is extra engaged. And the opening of the, of the bag releases all the amniotic fluid. It triggers a lot more contractions because of the natural physiology. These feedback loops are, are kind of stimulated by that. The brain says more Pitocin from the brain and the uterus is like, yes, sir, and starts contracting more. So it works like that. Um, the risks, though, are that we overstimulate the uterus through the same mechanism that's meant to help get the labor going. So now you've got way more activity and now you're giving medicine to slow the uterus down. And you can see how this just leads to one after another intervention. The baby's cord can also slip through, which is a super rare thing. It's called cord prolapse. Basically, the, the, the umbilical cord was like between the head and the cervix, and the cord slips out, and now the baby's head sinks down onto the, the, into the pelvis. The cord is now being asphyxiated, and the treatment for that is an emergency C-section. So there is that possibility. Um, but I think more importantly, why are we intervening when we don't need to intervene? Why are we so concerned that labor is not going as quickly as we'd like? Like, who cares? Why? Like, why are we so, that's just more work for us. So, you know, for women who are pregnant, you need to understand that there is a patience, there's a process here, and your body and your baby are going to be doing this thing in the way that they want it to happen. We can't insert ourselves when we want to control something. And just because it's hard to be pregnant at 40 weeks doesn't mean that we should intervene and start inducing and pushing this baby along. Your body's going to go into, into, into labor whenever you go into labor. Um, so there are some risks like that. I mean, you could, in, in essence, you could potentially lacerate the scalp with this little hook device. Um, you could overstimulate the uterus, prompting all these other interventions and maybe increasing risk of C-section. 
On the other hand, most women have this amniotomy and it doesn't cause any problems. You know, so I wouldn't be honest if I didn't say, yeah, it's it's generally pretty benign. Mm-hmm. But it's not a question as to whether it's benign or not. It's a it's a question as to why are we intervening when we don't need to intervene. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really want to stick with people. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Well, my head is just like buzzing <laughs> with all this information. <laughs> and uh, I can't wait for everyone to listen to this episode and and just know that, about their options, hear about the real data, the real numbers and the the likelihood of, you know, some of these worst case scenarios really happening. I think it's really going to empower a lot of moms. So thank you so much for doing what you do and for being this, this uh, disruptor maybe in the medical system that's really speaking the truth and doing what I think doctors and the Hippocratic Oath, you know, strive to do, which is to do no harm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's very much my pleasure. I, I've seen, you know, when I look through your podcast and I see what you're doing in this space, I mean, this is really what, this is really what we need to be doing is sharing stories and sharing experiences. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be honest if I said I have all the answers. Um, part of the, the, the great thing about what I'm doing is, you know, like I said, I don't really have a holistic means or, or not even holistic, a natural means of, of treating GBS in the vagina. But I know that the body has a way of working things out. And I know that if I can lean on functional med docs and naturopaths and midwives and this and that, that those pieces generally come together. But we're never going to get out of this pickle that, we're, that we see in, in maternity care in the United States, which ranks worse amongst all of the developed nations, really. Um, we're not going to get out of that unless we can start to bring more ideas and new ideas into conversation. And there is no right and wrong way. And if you out there are listening and anything I've heard, you, you've heard me say, sounds like I'm still just a, a sheep in wolf's clothing, maybe you're right. Like it's possible that I'm, I said that I'm wrong, that I don't have the answer. But maybe a year from now, I will have learned because somebody out there was open to teaching me. And I think until we're having these conversations and we're, we're really open to being wrong, but more than just being wrong, just being open and humble about what we do and don't know and be willing to take a step back and change direction when it's necessary, I don't think we're going to get anywhere. So, Cassandra, thank you for, for holding the conversations that you do. I actually think it's quite critical to the care for women and, and bringing in and ushering in a new world. So thank you for doing that. And if there's any ways that I can be supportive in the future, please reach out to me. Thank you. That means so much. Oh, and I can't forget, where can everyone find you? I know you have a podcast. Oh, yeah. I have a, the Holistic OB Joanne podcast is my show. Um, probably similar, similar situation, uh, conversations that you're having on your show. Um, I, I really, instead of getting into like, let's talk cervix or uterus, it's really conversations about parenting, about, about child raising, about engaging with our community and looking at that through the lens of OBGYN care and midwifery care. So there's a lot of conversations there, just, you know, birth stories, but also like, hmm, here's some biohacking things. How does this pertain to women's health? How do these things maybe play into a healthy pregnancy? What does truly holistic care even mean? It's not just natural. It's actually far broader than that. It gets into the energetic bodies, et cetera. So it's wide ranging conversations. I think people enjoy it. And then if you want to work with me or if you want to, um, you know, collaborate with me. My website is belovedholistics.com. And um, in order to ask me, for me to engage with you as a, as a doctor-client relationship, I have everybody join my private association, which you and I are going to talk more about another time. But 
basically, I don't work with insurance companies or the, you know, the legal system. I am working with you. And similarly to like somebody who comes to your door and wants to cut your grass, you guys have a private contract, $20 a week, cut my grass. And if there's any dispute, we work it out, you know, between us. And hopefully the guy with the lawnmower is not like going to run over your cat, right? And, you know, in malpractice. <laughs> so it's a private association. Um, you can find all of that on my website. And then once you've joined my, my PCA, you can book uh, consultations with me. You can buy packages of time with me. I work with everybody remotely. I have very few people in Kentucky, actually, clients. But everything that I do can be done remotely, um, including all the storytelling and the prescribing and ordering. And I work with a lot of fertility clients now, endometriosis, um, you name it. I mean, we're doing menopause is, is becoming a big thing for me, too. And, um, and then I also have this collaborator program, which a lot of people, I think, in your community might really appreciate. Like I said, when I stepped out of, out of the system, I wanted to do home birth, but instead decided, hey, what if I could make myself available to as many um, healthcare practitioners as possible who don't have easy access to an allopathic MD, who's open-minded and open-hearted to the wide variety of awesome treatment modalities in the world. And so a lot of midwives, naturopaths, acupuncturists, et cetera, will find my program. They pay a monthly fee after joining my PCA. They pay a monthly fee. And they can text or email with anything under the sun. And at the gold level, there's a couple levels. You can see it on the website. At the gold level, I will order meds. I will order diagnostics, including functional labs. I'm really experienced with Dutch testing and all kinds of other functional lab modalities. Um, I'll do any of those things on behalf of their clients. And so they pay a monthly fee. They've got a doctor in their corner. They don't have to send their, their, their patients to a doctor or the hospital system, which might shame them out of having a home birth or put a diagnosis on there that, like you said, kind of risks them out of midwifery care. So uh, it's the way that I make, I'm able to make myself most available. And I am accepting new collaborators. So if anybody's interested, they can also reach out to me directly through the website. So cool. That's such a brilliant idea. I'm so glad you're doing that. And yeah, I'll have all that linked in the show notes for anybody interested. And we hope today, everyone, you learned so much from this episode. And if you love this episode, you can tag me and Nathan on Instagram and share it with anyone in your life that you feel needs this information. And we will see all of you here next week here on the Cyclical Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the Cyclical Podcast today. The best way you can support the show is by rating and reviewing the Cyclical Podcast on iTunes. It also means so much when you share this on Instagram and tag me. It helps me see what episodes really, really resonated and just keep the goodness coming. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll see you here next week.